Hello and welcome to NewsHour live from the BBC World Service with me, Rebecca Kesby in London and James Kamarasamy in Wisconsin. Today we'll be looking at President Trump's maiden State of the Nation address last night and what to make of it. Also, how Afghan lives are affected by the Taliban, which is now in full control of 14 districts across the country. We were celebrating an engagement party when the shell landed. Two children and two women were killed. My aunt lost her eye. Plus, teaching killer whales to speak English. So what does that tell us about the orca's communication skills and why several stations are still off air in Kenya after a political stunt from opposition leader Raila Odinga yesterday? That's all to come. But we're going to begin with one of those set-piece moments in the American political calendar, the President's State of the Union speech. It's a chance for the White House incumbent to tell his story of the year that's passed and to set out his stall for the year ahead in domestic and foreign policy. Now, the speech can be a collection of rather unremarkable bromides, but it can include turns of phrase which foreshadow turning points in history. Just think of the phrase George W. Bush used in 2002 axis of evil. Well, I'm in Platteville, Wisconsin, in the heart of America's Midwest, where I've spent the past few days speaking to people in this part of the country that swung heavily behind Donald Trump at the last election. And I watched the speech with some of the Trump supporters I've met on my travels. We'll hear their assessment later on in the programme. But, spoiler alert, they rather liked it. Let's begin, though, with what he had to say and how he had to say it. And this report from the BBC's North America editor, John Sopel, in Washington. And with a huge grin fixed to his face, Donald Trump waved to supporters as he arrived at the chamber to deliver his first State of the Union speech. After a year of quarrels and fights, when all that he did seemed designed to please his base, this was a president who'd come to deliver a message to the whole nation. The word together was used a lot, as were the words consensus and compromise, not prominent features of the Trump lexicon hitherto. This, in fact, is our new American moment. There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. So to every citizen watching at home tonight, no matter where you've been or where you've come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything. You can be anything. And together, we can achieve absolutely anything. And there was a message for Democrats and Republicans in Congress listening to him. Put aside your differences to find a bipartisan way of dealing with immigration, of fixing the country's crumbling infrastructure, of making America great again. I want our youth to grow up, to achieve great things, I want our poor to have their chance to rise. So tonight, I am extending an open hand to work with members of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to protect our citizens of every background, color, religion, and creed. A year ago, in his joint address to Congress, Donald Trump said the time for trivial fights was over, only then to get into any number of self-defeating battles. So let's see how this iteration of the president, as Mr Consensus, shapes up. On foreign policy, he was much tougher. 
scathing about Iran and North Korea, arguing for strengthening US armed forces. Guantanamo Bay would not close. And after so many countries, including the UK, voted against America at the UN over the decision to move the US embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, a warning. Tonight, I am asking Congress to pass legislation to help ensure American foreign assistance dollars always serve American interests and only go to friends of America, not enemies of America. He dug into American history to appeal to patriots everywhere, talking of the places where US valour had ensured that freedom prevailed. And he went on. And freedom stands tall over one more monument. This one, this capital, this living monument, this is the monument to the American people. A few hundred miles north in Massachusetts, a fresh-faced young congressman was chosen to give the reply on behalf of the Democratic Party. Great-nephew of President John F. Kennedy, grandson of Bobby, this was the time for Joseph Kennedy III to step up and lift Democratic Party hopes and keep the dynastic family name to the fore. This administration isn't just targeting the laws that protect us. They're targeting the very idea that we are all worthy of protection. For them, dignity isn't something you're born with, but something you measure by your net worth, your celebrity, your headlines, your crowd size. He was there to appeal to the young voters, to the minorities who'd never quite warmed to Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump was trying to broaden his appeal beyond the base. For both parties, this State of the Union is all about November's midterm elections that will determine the trajectory of this presidency. John Sopel reporting there. Well, let's get a, a local and a national perspective on all of this. Uh, I'm joined here in Platteville by Steve Prestergaard, who's editor of the Platteville Journal. And we're joined by Professor Larry Sabato, director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Larry, can I start with you? You've watched, uh, I'm not going to hazard a guess at how many of these State of the Union addresses, but uh, how did this one stack up? Well, I'll be honest, I've watched over 50 of them, to be uh, frank with you. And I would say... This was a very divisive address. Um, the the uh, couching of the speech was in unifying language. In fact, it was very disunifying. It was anything but bipartisan. And to be honest about it, like almost all State of the Union addresses, this one will be forgotten by next week. Right. When he says unity, then he means disunity. He means uh, to his base, I'm with you, I'm sticking to the issues I was elected by you to push, and I want you to be excited and turn up in November to re-elect a Republican Congress. That was what this was all about. Donald Trump, a long time ago, recognized that there is no way for him to broaden his appeal to Democrats or even a large majority of independents. He depends on his base showing up disproportionately, and this speech was all for them. What would you point to then in terms of the red meat for his base? What, what were the key points that he had to hit? He dwelled on immigration. Notice how many times he brought it up and in how many ways. 
He was as tough as he has ever been on immigration. It's hard to see how there's going to be a compromise, as there must be in some way, to save uh, some of these dreamers, uh, uh, kids who were, or young people who were brought over as children who've never known another country. I don't know how we're going to reach that compromise, given the rhetoric last evening and his demands uh, that uh, immigration be restricted in many different ways. So I think immigration, more than anything else, defined that speech. What about what he said was an olive branch or a a concession, this uh, granting of a path to citizenship for 1.8 million of these dreamers? Well, that was in an earlier proposal, and that proposal has now been rejected by both sides. Uh, It's possible there could be some agreement based on a large uh, dreamer acceptance plus perhaps 10 to $20 billion for the border wall and border security. That's really the only hope here, and we'll see whether it can come together in the next few weeks. So what about the numbers? What about the, the goal of all of this as you've laid it out, Larry? Keeping control of Congress in November, uh, does it move the dial? No, I don't think it moves the dial. I think it does excite his base. He did achieve that goal. Uh, And he needs it because there is a wave building. There's what we call a blue wave. The the blue is the color of the Democratic Party. And it appears at least 50-50 that Democrats will take over the House of Representatives. The Senate's more of a long shot, though it's a possibility. If Democrats take over either House of Congress, the legislative part of Donald Trump's term is over. Larry, stay with us. I'm just going to bring Steve Prestigard in here, Steve. Uh, we, we, since we're talking colours, we talked about the blue wave. Wisconsin is known as a, a purple state that swings between red Republican, blue Democrat. W- what's your assessment? Uh, first of all, listening to what Larry had to say about the overall message being one not of the stated aim of unity, but actually of exciting the base. Well, that's uh, absolutely the case. Um, I feel sorry for anybody who's had to sit through 50 State of the Union speeches. I have to say that first. But, you know, he it, it certainly is not a speech that reaches out except to say, Democrats, vote with us. That's really what it says. It is absolutely a red meat, Republican, conservative speech. Um, unless you feel differently from what Trump does about trade and immigration, uh, I don't think there's anything in this speech from what I read of it to... Uh, really complain about if you're a Republican. And I think that that shows in the early uh, poll results, the SNAP polls about reaction to the State of the Union speech. One of those polls had an interesting statistic, though. It suggested actually independents rather liked it. Uh, and that is interesting. That's a that's a substantial number, 72%, according to the CBS poll. But this is late January, and the election is in November. That is a long, long time particularly if, as uh, Larry seems to think, there's not necessarily going to be a lot of movement on this. If my understanding of the rules is correct, they need 60 votes in the Senate to get anything passed because they need 60 votes in the Senate to stop debate on an issue. And um, there's not a whole lot in this speech that suggests that Democrats would say, well, okay, I can go for this, and then they can move forward. Um I'm not sure anything that is in this is necessarily going to get done for that reason. Anything, Larry Sabato, in this, any sort of details that that stick out? I mean, there wasn't a great deal of news, was there? I guess keeping Guantanamo Bay open is is one thing. Did you did you sense anything new there? 
Uh, you just identified the only new piece of the speech, keeping Guantanamo open. As you know, President Obama wanted to close it. That's another major difference between our two parties. If I could just interject one thing, the instant polls, and you cited one from CBS, are very misleading. They are polls of those who were watching the speech. Who watched the speech? Disproportionately Republicans. Most Democrats would not even tune in to listen to Trump. That's how divided we are. So naturally, when you sample uh, mainly Republicans, you're going to have a very positive response. But by no means was that a measurement of the U.S. population at large. Larry, thanks very much. Professor Larry Sabato, a director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. And uh, we also Heard from Steve Prestigard, editor of the Platteville Journal. We'll be hearing more from Steve later on in the programme. More from me as well. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Still to come on the programme, the first scientific demonstration that an orca or killer whale can mimic human words. We knew that they could copy familiar sounds, sounds that were already in the repertoire. But what we could show here in this study is that they can also copy sounds of another species, in this case us. More on that later. And a reminder of our other headlines this hour. The aid agency Médecins Sans Frontières says civil war in the Central African Republic has all but destroyed the health system. Hong Kong is to ban trading in ivory. And the head of national security in one of the world's most oppressive countries, Uzbekistan, has been sacked. More on those stories in our main news bulletin within the next hour. You're listening to News Hour with James Kamarasamy in Wisconsin and me, Rebecca Kesby, in London. Now, it's less than a week since more than 100 people were killed in Kabul when an ambulance packed with explosives was detonated in a crowded street. The Taliban claimed responsibility. Today, a BBC study finds that the Taliban are now openly active in 70% of Afghanistan and in full control of 14 districts. A network of BBC reporters across the country put the information together, speaking to hundreds of people in every province. They found that nearly half of the southern province of Helmand is now once again in the grip of the Taliban. Well, our reporter, Aulia Atrafi, has been to the front line on the outskirts of Lashkagan. He sent this report. Over 10,000 people live in this makeshift camp on the outskirts of Lashkagar in Helmand province. They fled their villages to escape the fighting between the Taliban and the Afghan security forces. Here I meet Zarif, a father of five. His family abandoned their home under a rain of bullets. We were celebrating an engagement party when the shell landed. Two children and two women were killed. My aunt lost her eye. Not just Zarif, but everyone else sitting around me has a similar story. Here, Mohamed Riza was one of the richest men in town. He had pomegranate orchard, and now he says he doesn't even have a blanket to sleep in. Mohamed Qasem's son here was blown away by a shell, and uh, his right arm is not working now. Shaista Khan's two legs 
or are blown away by a Taliban mine. Now he's saying that the war took my life from me. The Afghan war became more violent and widespread in 2017. A BBC investigation has found that the Taliban now has an active presence in almost 70% of the country. The power and the reach of the militants has been growing since foreign troops pulled out in 2014. Helmand was the base of the British army in Afghanistan. Hundreds of soldiers died defending the territory. But after they pulled out, almost half of the province fell to the Taliban. We're travelling inside an armoured vehicle with Afghan police to a forward operation base that literally means a front line, stopping the Taliban from entering Leshkagar, the provincial capital. We just got fired at by the Taliban. Now the police are returning the fire and I need to run for cover. This is their front line <laughs> and it shows how volatile it is. Although we are told this is normally quiet during the day, but this shooting proves otherwise. Night is particularly bad. Muhammad Azim, one of the soldiers on the front line, tells me that sometimes the shooting lasts for three to four hours. Other times it's more random and goes on for the entire night. You can't predict it. But what's it like for the many Afghans who find themselves now living in an area where the Taliban are active? I spoke to a farmer on the front line. We cannot identify him to protect his safety. He told me it's a living hell. Every day he pleads with both sides not to use their village as a battlefield. The Taliban fool the community with their propaganda. They don't care. At least the government listens to you. The Taliban will say it's not their problem. Last year was the bloodiest year for Helmand. That's the assessment of the governor of Helmand, Hayatullah Hayat. He believes there's only one solution. Here in Helmand, I'm treating both the widows of Taliban the orphan of Taliban and also the orphan or widows of the Afghan military officers and soldiers. Because majority of the, the, the uh, Taliban are Afghans. So we cannot reach conclusion or peace in this country with force and fighting. So I call on the, the Taliban that peace, negotiation, jirgas and talks are the only way to reach us to the, to the final peace process in Afghanistan. And that was Hayatullah Hayat, the governor of Helmand in Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan, ending that report from Hoila Atrafi. Now, it's been known for some time that orca whales are sociable creatures that have a complex range of sounds that they use to communicate with each other. But we didn't know that they're also able to speak human. That is, until now. New research suggests that orcas can imitate human speech. Wiki, a female orca kept in captivity at a French marine park, has learned basic greetings from her trainer. Hello? 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 
Okay, so what does this tell us about orcas or killer whales that we didn't know already? I've been speaking to Professor Joseph Call uh, from the University of St Andrews in Scotland, the co-author of the study. The main thing is how flexible their vocal imitative abilities are. We knew that they could copy familiar sounds, sounds that were already in their repertoire, sounds that other killer whales display. But what we could show here in this study is that they can also copy sounds of another species, in this case us. Because we already knew that orcas have very sophisticated uh, sound understanding and usage. I mean, some people actually call them languages, don't they? And different pods have different regional accents, I suppose you could say. Yes, in the field, in the wild, you cannot test these. So we wanted to see whether we could find some evidence of this in captivity. We found it. And what that means is it does not prove that what they are doing in the in the wild is vocal limitation, but it makes it a very plausible explanation for how they converge in the vocalizations that each group uses. Now, you bring up the point there that uh, this research was done with orcas in captivity, which is a very controversial issue in itself. I mean, these are enormous creatures and they're used to swimming up to around 100 kilometres a day, I think, in the wild. I I guess this is all trained behaviour that they've been undergoing. Um, How does this differ from any of the other tricks that they do in captivity for the entertainment of, of people? One main difference is that we train them on a set of vocalizations, but then we test them with new ones. So the killer whale has to be able to produce the new vocalization that we did not train. If the orca is capable of doing that, it shows that it's flexible. It's not just a trick that they learn to get a reward. It's something that goes beyond that. So they're very intelligent creatures. Is there any proof that they understand what they're saying? So far, we don't know that. The goal of the study was simply to see whether they are capable of learning a new vocalization to make a new sound by just listening to someone else produce that sound. And I suppose that is what's the most interesting thing about this, because there are other animals that do mimic. There are parrots, there's the infamous lyre bird that that, that can uh, sound like a chainsaw in the jungle. But I suppose because of the intelligence of these whales, there's a sense that perhaps they might be trying to communicate or they're knowingly communicating with humans. Again, I want to remain cautious on that point. But you said one thing, and is that you mentioned two bird species. And it is true. I mean, vocal learning abilities in birds are well known. But when you focus on mammals, that's very rare. Talking whales, whatever next. That was Professor Joseph Call from St Andrews University in Scotland with that new research into orca whales. Coming up next, more from James Kamarasamy in Wisconsin. But first, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is beginning her visit to China today to shore up trade tides with the world's second largest economy. The trip is being seen by many as a test of Britain's ability to forge new economic partnerships ahead of Brexit. But as our China correspondent John Sudworth reports, getting China to lift some of its barriers to UK businesses may not be so easy. This riding stables is the first here to be accredited by the British Horse Society. Just one example of how China's growing middle classes could help boost UK trade in a post-Brexit world. 
British brands tend to be a lot quieter, more discerning. Alex Huatien has put his money where his mouth is, or at least his passport. He gave up his UK nationality to ride for China at the Olympic Games, and he's now an ambassador for the British Horse Society in China. I think here in China, the Brits have to keep their cool, but at the same time, I think they can take it up a notch and compete a little bit more in comparison to other brands and other cultures. Jaguar Land Rover is one iconic British brand that has elbowed its way in. On a tour of its state-of-the-art factory near Shanghai, the message is all about expansion and the plan to increase capacity to 200,000 cars a year. So how quickly can you make the cars here? About 106 seconds, so we'll be offline. One car every 106 seconds. Yeah. But there are challenges too. The company has tried in vain to get China to halt production of a local startup brand that, it says, is based on an almost exact replica of one of its designs, even down to the name, not Land Rover, but Land Wind. For many other British companies, just getting into China in the first place can be tough. Despite all the talk of a golden era in diplomatic and trade relations, China has done little to lower its barriers in sectors where the UK is traditionally strong, like finance, healthcare and insurance. But for Jaguar Land Rover's China director, Pan Ching, the opportunities still far outweigh the risks, and he wants the UK to get serious about its China strategy. For a country like China, the dialogues is extremely important. And I can only encourage the PM that we started much more intensive dialogues. Meanwhile, China is busy fashioning its own future. Zhu Hong is a Beijing-based designer with a shop in London and reams of ambition about where her country is heading. China has had master craftsmen since ancient times. And these show us that China is not just the world's factory, but the world's high-end factory. Her workers have some fairly positive views of the distant land in which some of their products are now worn. The Chinese government, though, may be a little more strategic. While the UK wants more deals and more access in a post-Brexit world, China may find itself asking who needs who the most. John Sudworth reporting there from Beijing. You're listening to News Hour with Rebecca Kesby in London and me, James Kamarasamy, in Platteville, Wisconsin. I'm in America's Midwest, a part of the country where people voted for Donald Trump in large numbers back in 2016. But with midterm elections approaching in November and the Democrats hopeful of regaining control of one or both houses of Congress, Mr Trump's agenda is far from assured. His address last night to the joint and for the moment jointly Republican-controlled House and Senate in Washington was therefore a key moment. He used the occasion to claim credit for a thriving economy, to issue a call for a bipartisan approach to the vexed issue of immigration and he appealed to a patriotic sense of duty amongst all Americans. Tonight, I want to talk about what kind of future we're going to have and what kind of a nation we're going to be. All of us together as one team, one people, and one American family can do anything. We all share the same home, the same heart, the same destiny, and the same great American flag. 
Well, it's become a staple of State of the Union addresses to turn the spotlight on invited guests whose stories are meant to highlight some of the policy points the president is making. This year was no exception. It felt as though President Trump, the former TV showman, made more of this than some of his predecessors, in fact. He singled out a worker, a firefighter, a military veteran, parents whose daughters had been murdered by a gang whose members include illegal immigrants, and a boy from California about the same age as his youngest son. Here tonight is Preston Sharp, a 12-year-old boy from Redding, California, who noticed that veterans' graves were not marked with flags on Veterans Day. He decided all by himself to change that and started a movement that has now placed 40,000 flags at the graves of our great heroes. Preston, a job well done. Well, later in the speech, he spoke of what he called his own duty as American president. My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream. Because Americans are dreamers, too. Our cheers in the hall. And that pointed uh, reference, of course, to the dreamers, those are the uh, uh, children, uh, illegal immigrants who came into this country and are now at the centre of this question of what to do with America's immigration policy. That certainly went down well with the local Trump supporters who I watched the State of the Union address with here in Platteville. In fact, I'd been invited back to the man cave that uh, you might have heard on yesterday's programme by its dweller, ex-Democrat Keith Kisher, his wife Josephine, and uh, their friend, retired teacher Marcella Dante. Now, Marcella arrived with a big yellow notepad and a few concerns. And when I got their post-speech assessment, I began by asking her what those concerns were. My concerns were that the president has a tendency occasionally to go off script and say some things that are less than positive. He did not do that at all, and I was very happy. I couldn't be more happy with his speech. Keith, what did you make of what you heard? I saw him tonight, I think, talking about what he's doing for jobs and so forth, turn Pelosi's crumbs into little nuggets of gold uh, for people that work every day. So that was a pleasant surprise. The other things I wanted tonight was um, an expansion of how he's going to pull this uh, immigration deal together. And I just was enthused about his effort to take the middle of the road, get the Democrats in, do a bipartisan thing because that's what we need to do. We need to get to a bipartisan country, and I think he made great strides in that direction if they will accept it. The word together was used a lot, but will that be translated into action? I think so. Schumer and the Democrats took a tremendous hit for shutting down the government when they didn't have to. And so I think the demand to be more cooperative will be there. And uh, I think the more progress Trump makes on his uh, programs, the less resistance he'll have from the far right that say, well, it's my way or no way. So you think there is, there is a struggle within the party then? Oh, yeah, very much so. On the Republican side, why uh, the Freedom Caucus has a great deal of input there. But what we need to get things done is the middle of the road. The old Democratic Party, if you will, where Republicans and Democrats work together to solve problems, and you give and take, and at the end of the day, why uh, you get something done, you go have a beer together. That's where we need to be. Did you like what you heard, Josephine? Yes, definitely. If you're an American, I can see how you would say you didn't like what he said. Why do you say that? Well, everything he said was what he promised, 
and he's following through and you how can you object with anything that he brought forth and that he's working on so yeah i think it's terrific and also that he keeps Guantanamo Bay open. That was another thing I, I was hoping. To Why talk. is that important? Well, you need that. I mean, you know, you get these people, what, are you going to let them loose like the previous administration has? And they're coming right back to hit us again. And what about the economic message then for you, Marcella? What did you take away? Well, it was positive. He outlined all of the things that they have done and what he hopes to do. And again, he is addressing the everyday people, and I think they were easily able to understand what he's saying. He wasn't uh, addressing the elites or anything else. He was talking to the people that he seems to care about. And his best line was, Americans are dreamers, too. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? And he he closed so beautifully by the whole thing about this house. And this Congress belongs to the people. This is your house. You know, we represent you. And the government's gone the other way, you know. It's it's the people serving the politicians, and that's backwards. And he's got it right. He's serving the people, and Congress should be too. So in terms of what he did during that hour, hour and a half, uh, he also brought a lot of guests in. He referred to a lot of people. How did you think that went, the style? I thought he did it wonderfully. So I thought it was really moving. I mean, I had tears in my eyes several times because the early people that have suffered for us, and I think it was terrific. What about, so the president brought these families into the speech at regular intervals. Some of them were grieving families, families who'd been through a lot. That could look like exploitation, couldn't it? I don't think so. It's to honor them and to grieve with them. It's to show them our sympathy and that we are for them. I don't think it was exploitation. That's what the left, of course, would like you to believe. And that's, you know, what the previous administration did all the time. They had people paraded up and down. But he really gave them the recognition and, you know, recognized what their families have done. And I just think it was a great thing to do. Do you think he will convince doubters, Marcella? If they aren't convinced, it is because they have set their heart and head against it. It is not because of what he said tonight or what he has been doing. So, uh, Keith, when we look back at this, I mean, you speak very highly of him when we spoke the other day about he could be the greatest of all time, the goat. Where does this speech sit? Uh, it's a move in the right direction. It'll remain to be seen by far. It'll be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years before we know how good he really is. But look at what he's done so far. I've got a list over here of 188 things that he's accomplished so far in his first year. Things that have never even been covered in the press, but just incredible achievements for one year. I want entrepreneurship. I want the ability for the guy who went to a little country grade school to uh, get a job uh, hauling manure or flipping hamburgers or something to move to another job, to a bigger job, to a better job. And if you're on welfare, get off of welfare and go to work. And that's America. And uh, if he can get that done, if he can turn America around to be that great country, we're all dreamers. He said it. We're all dreamers. Americans are dreamers, too. And if he can do that, he will be a goat. And Marcella, you were nervous. You thought maybe he'll put his foot in his mouth. Maybe he'll say something that you don't want him to say. I mean, the speech is done and dusted and he'll take to the Twitter again and he might do exactly that. I mean, couldn't he just undo all the good work you think he's done with one or two tweets? That's obviously a possibility. But you can't unspeak the speech that he made. And if people really want to be positive they'll uh, reflect on that speech. 
Marcella Dante, and we heard from Keith and Josephine Kisher there, big Trump supporters here in Grant County in Platteville. Uh, still with me listening to that is Steve Prestigard, who's editor of the Platteville Journal. It really is striking, I have to say, Steve, coming here and, and getting a sense of uh, different realities. I mean, th- those folks that I was speaking to, they don't believe what they hear in large parts of the media. They don't listen or watch. They've turned off. They said, look, this... This is this is not what we perceive Donald Trump and his presidency to be. It just feels as though there are two realities in America at the moment. Do you sense that? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> we're a very um, divided country, but we're divided in non-political senses also. Um, I, I don't think there's been any question that it it's something that has gone in this country for probably more than 20 years. Actually, there's been some instances around 9-11, for instance, where kind of the political divisions went away. And then within a year or so in that case, they came right back. That is the logical result of how the political system is set up in this country and size of government and all that. But there is a sense that if you, again, opinion polls, people can be skeptical of them, but many, many Americans feel that Donald Trump is pushing the divide what he's said and done over the last year and in the campaign is is almost instrumental to the divide and that then for him to be the person delivering a message saying we must all come together it's it it's just not going to wash is it well let's keep in mind you know when you talk when politicians talk about unity what they're really saying is you people who don't support me support me you people who don't agree with what i want to do do what I want to do. I mean, that's really what unity is about uh, in in terms of politics because true unity requires compromise. And there are some issues that people are not really going to compromise about. In this country, probably the one big thing is abortion rights because if you, you know, agree with only a few cases of abortion, you're still that's still more than zero. Tax cuts, for instance, if you say, well, we won't cut taxes as much or we won't increase taxes as much that's still a loss in that sense it's uh, it's unfortunate perhaps but i'm not positive that that kind of hasn't really been the case longer than people think it has been um, because there are still a fair number of yes no black white a or b uh, political issues out there i think i think it's a whole lot more obvious now um, but i don't think that's not necessarily been the case for longer than now what about then the the politics of this as we look ahead to midterm elections and whether or not the majorities that the Republican Party has in Congress will be maintained? What's your sense in terms of how all of this is going to play in this part of the country? Well, this is part of the country that voted for Trump. Uh, one of the things is, I guess you asked the question, why did they vote for Trump? And there's kind of two schools of thought. One was they really did support him. The second is because he ran against Hillary Clinton. Now, um, he's not running against Clinton, but then again, he's not running, of course, in this particular case. It seems to be the case now. And again, it's been longer than people, I think, realize. But, you know, elections have become less about um, convincing the undecided, non-Republican, non-Democratic voter, and it's really about getting your base out. And if you look at the State of the Union speech, that was very much about getting Trump's base out, specifically and Republicans generally out. Steve, thanks for your insight. Steve Prestigard there, the uh, editor of the Platteville Journal. Um, it's been a fascinating few days in this part of the Midwest. Uh, from me, James Kamara Sami, though, that's all for the time being. You're listening 
to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. And a reminder of our top story this hour. President Trump has made a plea for unity in his first State of the Union address to Congress. But Professor Larry Sabato from the University of Virginia Center for Politics told NewsHour the speech was directed firmly at the president's base. Donald Trump, a long time ago, recognized that there is no way for him to broaden his appeal to Democrats or even a large majority of independents. He depends on his base showing up disproportionately, and this speech was all for them. And other headlines this hour. The aid agency Médecins Sans Frontières says civil war in the Central African Republic has all but destroyed the health system. And Hong Kong is to ban trading in ivory. You're with NewsHour live from the BBC World Service with James Kamarasamy in Wisconsin and me, Rebecca Kesby, in London. Let's cross to Nairobi now because the Kenyan authorities are coming under fire from journalists and pressure groups for ordering a police shutdown of several national television stations. The ban came into force yesterday as Kenya's main opposition leader, Raila Odinga, staged his own swearing-in ceremony as what he called the People's President. Mr Odinga has refused to Accept the results of elections in October, which returned Uhuru Kenyatta as president. Earlier elections were declared void by the courts due to election irregularities. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Nanjala Nyaibola, a political commentator and writer in Nairobi, and I asked her first how effective the ban had been. Some people were able to navigate around it very easily because it didn't affect all of the online live streams. So Citizen TV, which is by market share the largest television station in the country, they were offline both online and on TV. But uh, the other two private TV stations, NTV and KTN, they were available on the live stream. So many people were able to watch on the live stream, but they were not available on air. So there is a lot of question as to whether it was an effective ban. And we understand there are still a couple of stations at least off air today. Yes, as I understand it, the government has issued a circular in which they're saying that they're going to keep these stations offline until further notice while they complete their investigations into the inauguration yesterday. This swearing-in ceremony, to give it that title, was widely seen as a bit of a PR stunt, really, even by Ryla Odinga's own supporters. I think he only turned up for about 20 minutes or so. Does this blackout draw more attention to it than the government would prefer? Absolutely. And that's why, from an analytical perspective, it seems like a gross miscalculation on the part of the government. It seems like they were more invested in making a show of force than they were into um, intelligent managing what really could have just been a blip in the political landscape, but is now a focal point for a great deal of organizing, a great deal of resistance and a great deal of political attention. I suppose it also makes the assumption that uh, TV anchors and and the way the media may have covered it would be biased in favour of Raila Odinga. And there's absolutely nothing to suggest that would be the case. They seem to be implying that the mere uh, coverage was a seditious or treasonous act. So the government circular, the one that was issued today, really focuses on the illegality of the putative inauguration yesterday and is painting the media houses that decided to cover the event as being complicit in a treasonous act. 
The media has been something of a battleground in Kenyan politics in recent years. What's it like to try and be a journalist in that country at the moment covering all of this? It's an odd mix of things. Um, There's definitely an element of fear and uh, trepidation. We've seen a number of high-profile intimidation incidents since August of last year, which is when we had the the first version of the general election. We've had journalists like Walter Menya, who was arrested and what he claims are trumped-up charges of accepting bribes. Um, We had a senior journalist who received an intimidating call from a senior member of the uh, deputy president's team. So all of these things have heightened the sense of insecurity. Nanjala Nyaibola there in Nairobi. And since we spoke to her, we're hearing from Kenyan newspapers uh, that an MP involved in that so-called inauguration stunt, uh, Tom Kajwanga, has been arrested in Nairobi. More on that to come on the World Service. Now, equal pay is back in the news today as the director general of the BBC, Tony Hall, and the corporation's former China editor, Carrie Gracie, are appearing before British MPs at a select committee hearing. It got underway within the past hour. My case is just an example of the bigger problem, but but it's a useful example because I was a senior person who the BBC really wanted to keep in position. And so if the BBC can't sort it out for me, a senior person of 55 in a powerful position, then how can it sort it out for more vulnerable people who don't have a public profile? That's my concern. And that's the only reason that I'm really prepared to talk about my case. Carrie Gracie speaking a short time ago. Well, MPs want to investigate whether BBC management has a case to answer over allegations made by Ms Gracie and the wider group, BBC Women, of which I'm a part, that not enough has been done to correct what they claim are gender pay inequalities throughout the publicly funded organisation. BBC management has said it's committed to resolving the issue and denies any gender bias regarding pay decisions. Well, for a broader look at this issue of equal pay, let's speak to businesswoman and writer Margaret Heffernan, who uh, has her own experience of this as a CEO of a high-tech company and in the spirit of full transparency. I should also mention that many, many years ago she did work as a producer for the BBC. Uh, Margaret, welcome to the programme. Hi. It's nice to be here. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. Now, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your particular pay dispute as head of a tech company and why this is such a big deal for you? Sure. Um, tech companies for a venture capital firm in the United States. And I discovered much that um, I was being paid exactly half what other CEOs, similar uh, investments were being paid. And initially, I could do nothing about because the source of my information couldn't be compromised. Uh, but eventually, appeared in publicly available documentation. At which point, I wrote to my chairman and explained how shocked and horrified I was to discover I was being paid fifty percent of my male peers. And uh, the next day, my pay was doubled. So that sounds like a nice, happy ending story. Um, The truth is it was absolutely gut-wrenching because I was doing work I loved with people I loved. And the notion of being cheated, that I clearly wasn't being taken as seriously, this was really unjust 
It made me question the value of the people I worked with, why I worked for them. And, um, and I think people often forget that, you know, it sounds like it's about numbers and money, but it's about much more than numbers and money. It's about dignity and fairness. And are you being taken seriously? It's a very difficult line, Margaret. I do apologize for that. But just uh, in summary, you're making the point that you were paid 50% less than your male counterparts. And when you uh, complained about it, uh, they they did change that. Very briefly, it's difficult, though, for managers, isn't it, when they're dealing with something uh, with this sort of legacy that's been going on for decades? It's not nearly as difficult as they're making out. I think once you decide that you're going to pay, you do the numbers, you write the check, and you move on. And I think mistake made in this situation is okay. not to have the wrong ideas, but not to see how urgent All right. it is. It, that's they a shame have- uh, that we couldn't hear you properly. Margaret Heffernan there uh, with her experiences, and we'll try and re-establish that line later today. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.